Thank you so much. You also should have gotten a handout this evening as you came in. Uh, anyone still in need of a handout, you'll be totally lost without one. You won't know who's on first. So um, grab one if you didn't, or there's a few men who are willing to give you one. All right, great. Um, our music folks are coming back, but let's go ahead and we'll bow in prayer and we will begin. Holy Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for its truth that is life-changing, the very instrument that you use to bring us to genuine faith and the tool that the Spirit uses to grow us. We pray and ask that you would teach us how it is that we should sow to the Spirit, how it is that we should chew and meditate and ponder on your holy infallible word. So be with us tonight. Help me and empower me and use this message for all who will hear it. Until Jesus comes, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, let me just briefly review where we have been. This is, by the way, our discovery class. How many are here for the very first time? Raise your hand high. All right, I don't see anyone. So we, uh, I mean in terms of this particular Wednesday night handout. All right, if, yeah, thank you. Good, we're glad you're here. So um, this is actually our discovery class. It's um, called Back to Basics Online. Churches really in many, many states across America are using it. And if there's a church you know that want to use it, they're free to. They just have to keep the copyright in it just as it is. They can't change anything. And if they agree to that, we share it with them. Um, it's also being translated into some different languages for some foreign countries. But this is the discovery class. So if you wonder what it is that we teach in there, this is the nuts and bolts. And so we're spoke so far, we began with this, this topic is called the Christian in the Bible. We started with the power of the word of God. We saw its power as it, in respect to justification, that no one has ever been saved apart from the word of God. Even before the scripture was printed, even before it was put down, it came in many portions and in many ways. And when you understand that, you'll use the scripture in the process of evangelism. We saw also God's word in respect to sanctification. And so we're told like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow. Then Roman numeral two dealt with the priority the Christian should place on the word of God. Uh, we saw that the Christian is to be diligent uh, to learn God's word, be diligent or study, you could render it, to present yourself approved of God as a workman, not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And we saw that while all God's people are equally loved, we're all beloved, we're a member of the beloved, the verb and the noun, we highlighted both. Uh, not all Christians are approved by God. If the tool that the Spirit of God uses is the Bible to convert people, and the tool that he uses to grow people is the Bible, and you're limited in your ability by choices you've made, then you are going to be limited in your usability before the Lord. So we're to be diligent to study God's Word. We're to be like a plowman who... Um, you know, cuts a straight furrow or like a, a man cutting a straight road in the forest. And we looked at some of those illustrations outside of the scripture. Um, we also dealt with the Christian must minister the word of God from a spirit-filled life. You know, you can know the Bible, but if you're not filled with the spirit in your administration of it, then you're going to be significantly limited in terms of how God could use you. And so with every section in the discovery class, there's always a brief review. And so we briefly reviewed uh, on two pages of this outline from section six in the course. And we looked at three of the uh, express responsibilities that the Christian has in his relationship to the Spirit of God. So if someone asks you, what are the four commands in Scripture that summarize your responsibility to the Spirit so that He can fill you, you should know it like that. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to help your children. You're not going to be able to help those whom you are called to disciple. And so this is why these truths are so important and why I often tell people the discovery class is not just for new Christians. It's for people who've never been discipled, and it is for those who want to know how to disciple others. And so there are four commands in the New Testament. Quench not the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we're not doing those things in the positive realm that we should be doing. 
And of course, the solution to that is to yield every area of your life to God. Grieve not the Spirit. You grieve the Spirit when you do those things that you shouldn't do. And the solution to grieving the Spirit of God is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. Then we saw the third command in Scripture is to walk by the Spirit. Just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? You came as a bankrupt person. You admitted you were helpless. You could do nothing to contribute to your salvation. You put your full weight on Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you didn't do that, you haven't been saved. That's Christianity 101. Well, as we have received him, now we are to walk with him, in him, depending on him, just as you depend on one foot that's in the air and one foot on the ground to walk. And then in this section, new, is what we promised in the last section, we cover what it means to sow to the Spirit. And so it's important to understand what that means. And so we began to look at various aspects of sowing to the Spirit. And if um, you remember, if I'm just a brief review, uh, because I know we're walking into this a little bit cold, some of us, let me just briefly review the last two pages so you have some context or it won't make a lot of sense tonight. Uh, notice the first uh, page there in your handout. Uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking uh, of our need to have this clean heart, this clean life, for the Spirit of God to be able to sow His truth into our hearts. He doesn't sow His seed in a dirty heart. So this is why it's important we're not grieving or quenching Him, we're depending on Him. And so Paul said, for the report of your obedience is reached to everyone, therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And so the Christian is not to um, feed his flesh. He is not to discover evil. He is to be innocent as to what is evil. Um, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts scored morals. Now, interestingly, both of those texts of Scripture are in reference to false teachers. And sadly, there is a lot of... Christians all across America who have sat under false teachers. We've seen the disaster of Bill Heibel, a serial adulterer. I called him out 15 years ago, and I was called critical and jealous. I said, no, his theology is awful. His theology is terrible. I called out um, Andy Stanley maybe 15 years ago. I was told I was being critical and jealous. I said, no, his theology is awful. And so when you accompany your mind with bad company, bad teaching, you do damage to your spiritual life. And so that's really the context of the warning, though you could extend it and apply it certainly to other realms. And so you don't want your kids hanging around with someone who's going to bring them down morally and so on and so forth, all right? So um, uh, even so, in Psalm 1, well, let me just read this. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what... Do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Or what does light have in common with darkness? Obviously nothing. Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial, one of the names for Satan that we explored? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? Nothing. Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Nothing. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst, be separate, that's the command. Be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Even so, in Psalm 1, God makes a division between the wicked and the righteous, between the saved and the lost. For God does not divide men as we do, because he does not see as man sees. So I filled these in for you so that we could move fast on the two review pages. And so we are not to walk in the counsel of the wicked because ungodly philosophies will poison your mind as wicked counsel always leads to sinful living, resulting in our standing in the path of sinners. Satan deemed the God of this world, small g, obviously, um, he knows that if he can get you to think incorrectly, since our thinking influences our behavior, he will have won getting you to live out some sinful act. We find in Psalm 1 an evolution to sinful behavior. 
because the counsel of the wicked will put you into the path of the sinners, of sinners, and the sinful lifestyle of the lost will land you in the seat of scoffers uh, who are proud of their sin. So in a downward spiral, and that's what they teach the kids. This is one of the psalms they memorize on kids' choirs. And if you're live streaming, your kids have never come to choirs on Wednesday night, they're missing out hugely, not just for the godly music they're going to put in their hearts, but the eight or nine psalms they're going to memorize. Um, And so uh, it's in a downward spiral, the lost move from walking or entertaining sin to standing or lingering in sin to scoffing where one is defending his sin, a progression from being ungodly to becoming anti-godly. Since this happens to the lost, the righteous are to guard against certain teachings and certain people and certain companions like a deadly disease. And so Psalm 1-2 has within it a contrast, that key word but in verse 2, but because the, un, because the godly person has his delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he shuns the counsel of the ungodly for the word of God. However, if you clog up your spiritual arteries with filth, then your delight will not be in Scripture, nor will you meditate on it. As we have noted, like a cow that loads up on grass in the morning so she can chew on it all day long, we too should ruminate. We looked at the etymology of the word meditate. We too should ruminate on God's word. Clearly, meditation is revealed in the Bible has nothing to do with any practices that have foundationally the emptying of one's mind. And there are some illustrations, contemplate, contemplative prayer, centering prayer, transcendental meditation, etc., yoga. Again, God's voice is heard in his word and not in some extra biblical revelation. And so our goal is not to empty our minds, but to fill our minds. When David prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, contextually his thoughts are rooted in the precepts and the commandment of God. That's the context of that statement. The precepts of the Lord, and notice it's all caps there, yud Hey vav Hey. it's Yahweh. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. True Christian meditation is an active thought process as we study God's word, praying and asking our teacher, the Holy Spirit. That's one of his titles, by the way. He's called the teacher, right? Praying and asking our teacher, the Holy Spirit, to give us the understanding we need. Nowhere in Scripture are Christians encouraged to seek any kind of meditation beyond the Bible, which, of course, is inspired or literally God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. When we put into practice the truth that God has revealed, God in turn reveals more of himself, and we grow closer to him. When it becomes our practice to read, study, and internalize God's word, the process is not a burden, but a blessing. It's not something that the believer has to do. It's something we get to do. The more you do it, that's what you discover. It just becomes exciting. It becomes your delight as you find yourself throughout the day talking to the Holy Spirit within as he speaks to you from the Word of God. When the study of Scripture becomes our delight, then we have moved forward in our walk with the Lord from simply reading the Bible to actually meditating on the Bible. We are sowing to the Spirit. This is what allows us to experience the truth of 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. You know what we mean here by flesh, by our own ability or strength. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's impossible if you're not sowing to the Spirit, if you're not ruminating on the Word of God. Now, that brings us to where we left off. If you're new, people fill in the blanks because many are taking this through the Institute of Biblical Studies for credit, and we know, too, it helps people to pay attention. So 66 is where we're at. Many have found this acrostic helpful when first beginning to learn the practice of meditating on the Bible, not in some mechanical fashion, but in reading more reflectively to internalize God's truth. This is something I got in college. And so let me just give it to you. M is for memorize. Memorize the verse. 
So technically, you don't have to memorize a verse of Scripture to meditate on it, but it certainly doesn't hurt. There's a lot of Scripture I haven't per se um, memorized, but I've used it so much, I can almost verbatimly you know, share it because it's a part of me. But memorizing Scripture can be very, very helpful. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment, 1 Corinthians 6, if you have a Bible with you tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in this chapter of Scripture, Paul is dealing with um, some problems that had happened in the Corinthian church, namely sexual immorality. And he wants them to know that uh, some things are lawful, but not everything is profitable, and we're not to be mastered by anything. And so with that said, he goes on to illustrate the problem of sexual immorality, that since you are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, as he's already taught in chapter 3, that when you are engaged in immorality, you're carrying the Spirit of God with you into that immorality. And then in verses 19 and 20, he asks a question, or do you not know, one of Paul's favorite expressions, know this, get this, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, suppose that was the verse, two verses you wanted to memorize. How would you do it? I um, knew a guy, his name was Holy Hubert. He would come onto the uh, campuses in the 1970s when I was a student at Boston College and later on staff, and he had the entire New Testament memorized. The entire New Testament memorized. And people thought, no, he doesn't, he did. And he was brought into a meeting, and they said, Galatians 5. <laughs> and he didn't have photographic memory. He was a pretty amazing guy. He had an eighth-grade education. When you looked at him, he had some missing teeth because he had been beaten up so many times preaching the gospel. But he certainly loved the Lord passionately. I'm sure he's in heaven for a few decades now. But with that said, this is the method he taught us, and I think it's very, very useful. He said, when you memorize a verse of Scripture, first say it out loud three times with the address. So you'd go 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19, or do you not know that your body, you read it out loud, read it out loud three times with the address. Most of us, as we'll see, we start at stage three. Stage one is to read it out loud three times with the address. Then write it out three times, word perfect, with the address. So you literally write it down three times with the address. And then the third step is you begin to memorize it phrase by phrase. So you'd go first the address, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That's the two verses I'm memorizing. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Okay, I got it three times in a row without a mistake. I'm going to add a phrase, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know? No, 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 no. Add another phrase, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Or however many words you want to add. And when you can say it three times in a row without a mistake, then add another phrase. And that will really implant it in your heart. And then, he didn't suggest this, but this was helpful to me. I just wrote it out on a three-by-five card. And, you know, when I was, you know, say, in a line at the bank and some lady is taking forever, what is she doing? Is she negotiating a home mortgage? Or, well, what's the deal, you know? And, and uh, that was a chance to review the verse and to take a little spiritual break. And, and now, you know, you can do it on your computer and you can get these sheets and they all tear out in a nice little three by five cards and it's all printed out and you can print, you know, six on a page or whatever. And so memorize the verse. Secondly, emphasize key words, emphasize key words. So as you read through the verse, and again, what you're trying to do, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So this is something Paul wants me to know. What does it imply? That not everybody knows it or really where it's penetrated the heart. Or do you not know that your body, again, think about the context. He's dealing with sexual immorality. Or do you not know that your body, and so you go through the verse and you emphasize key words. Or do you not know your body is a temple? Under the Old Covenant, God had a temple for His people. Under the New Covenant, 
God has a people who are his temple. So again, you're just, it causes you to chew on it a little bit. Define words you do not understand. So if you come to a word and you say, well, what, what does that mean, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, then you'd want to research that. Or if there is, as we illustrated a few weeks back in 1 Peter 2.1, malice, guile, slander. What's the difference between malice, guile, and slander if these are three things I'm to put away? So you look up the words. Obviously, if it's a good, reliable English translation and not a paraphrase, they've selected the best word in English that reflects that Greek word. And so most of the time in English, dictionary is all you need. Individualize. I is for individualize. Individualize, and you do that by using first-person pronouns. First-person pronouns. So you take the verse. Carl, don't you know that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that he is in me, and that I have him from God, and that I'm not my own, therefore I am uh, I've been bought with a price, therefore I am to glorify God in my body. And so you're just personalizing it. Again, you're ruminating, you're chewing like a cow chews its cud, swallows it, vomits it back up, chews it, swallows it, goes through that process all day, and out comes a beautiful glass of milk when it's all over, right? And that's what the Word of God does is you chew on it, as you med- meditate on it. Think about what you're learning. Think about what you're learning. What will really help you to think about what you're learning is to understand the context. And so if um, typically I've found in my life, if I'm looking for a verse and it doesn't come to mind the chapter at this point in my life, I'm not as fresh in the context as I need to be. So when I learn a verse in its context, I just think, oh, 1 Corinthians 6, that's dealing with the whole subject of sexual immorality. And uh, at least the second half is the first half, half deals with judging and taking Christians to court and all that. So, so when you understand the context too, it kind of makes it come alive, especially since he has described the fact that when someone has an immoral relationship, they become one flesh with the person. And so you don't want to bring the Holy Spirit into that sin. Apply, apply what you are learning. Apply what you are learning. So how are you going to apply this verse? If my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and let's say it's in the realm of sexual immorality, that God is using this verse in my life, well, how am I going to apply that? Are there things I'm putting in my heart? Um, maybe it has nothing to do with sexual immorality, but the principle stands, and so it could apply in another area. Am I digging a grave with my spoon? Am I 40, 50 pounds overweight? You know, and we got to think these things through. We have to exercise self-control or whatever it is. You know, we, we need to ask that question. How does it play? Tell others. You know, we're to speak to one another in psalm and hymns and spiritual songs. Go to your wife. Hey, let me tell you what God's showing me this morning. We do that all the time. We, we, we talk about what we're learning, what God's teaching us. And, you know, we're to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so as you share what God's telling, showing you, that can be a great help. And do it in the process of enjoy. Enjoy the Lord. This is not some legalistic thing. This is a great thing. It's fun. It's fun to be a Christian. And it's fun to memorize Scripture. And it's fun to meditate on it. All right? All right, memorize. 67. Jesus modeled us for us, taking every thought captive, we just read that, right? When he was tempted, because each time he responded by quoting scripture. So Matthew 4, Luke 4 are the only two chapters that record the temptation of Christ. And each time he responds with scripture. The Bible informs us that he was operating under the power of the spirit, as Matthew indicates that he was led by the spirit into the wilderness, Matthew 4, 1. And as Luke notes... Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So he's led by the Spirit, he's filled with the Spirit, and by the way, that's the only way you're gonna be effective in using the sword of the Spirit. If you're not filled and you've got some scripture memorized, you've really uh, basically put the sword in a sheath and you can't even pull it out. By the way, God's objective was to demonstrate the character of his son by exposing him to Satan's tests. For Scripture consistently teaches that God does not tempt anyone in order to seduce them to sin. 
We cover this in the Institute of Biblical Studies in the course on Christology, where we deal with the doctrine of peccability versus impeccability, two important Christian doctrines of the Reformation. Did Jesus have a sin nature and he just didn't sin? Uh, some people say that. Those were heretics like Seventh-day Adventists. They taught that. He had a sin nature, just didn't sin. No, he didn't have a sin nature. He was immaculately conceived. Or um, could Jesus have sinned? Uh, and I would say no. In fact, that was, that's called impeccability. That the temptations were to show that Jesus could not sin. Were the temptations real? Yes. Uh, Dr. Pentecost, one of my professors in seminary, used to illustrate it. He said, if you have an iron beam and a soft piece of solder, the solder all by itself can bend and twist, but if it's fixed to the iron beam, you can't bend it. So Jesus had a divine human nature, and the temptations showed not that he could sin, but that he could not sin. They were an illustration of his sinless character. The Holy Spirit, number 70, cannot tempt us, for He is God, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But the Holy Spirit will help us if we're filled with His presence in order to battle the temptation. So God's not tempting Him, but God is going to empower Him and use Him. And His presence allows us to battle the temptation. Jesus quoting Scripture shows us of His total commitment to memorize and to follow God's will as revealed in His Word. And so I gave you the three places there in Matthew 4 where He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. While Jesus could have commanded Satan into another universe by His reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word, he resisted the devil as a man, giving us an example that we can imitate. So remember, in the kenosis, that's also covered in Christology. Christ emptied himself. It's the Greek word kenosis. He didn't empty himself of his deity. It's not 100% accurate or could be misunderstood. Still, it's my favorite hymn. He emptied himself of all but love. Well, not exactly. He didn't empty himself of his omniscience, of his omnipresence. He still retained all of his divine attributes. And I understand Charles Wesley's spirit in it, so I'm not picking at him. I know people, but there are some churches who won't sing that hymn for that reason. Um, <laughs> in either case, what he did choose to do and empty himself is as a man to live in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. He depended totally on the Spirit of God to live the kind of life that he needed to live. He resisted the devil as a man, giving us an example that we can imitate. Jesus faced Satan as man and not as God, as seen in the fact that he did not use his divine powers to overcome the enemy. Now, it's no temptation for you if Satan said, turn these stones into bread, because <laughs> I can't do it, right? That's not a temptation for us, but it was for Jesus. Because he had a divine nature and he could have gone outside of total dependence on the Spirit to live a godly life, but he didn't. He depended on the Spirit one step at a time, which is what Satan tempted him to do. He relied on the Spirit in the hidden Word. He relied on the Spirit in the hidden Word. And so, next page here. When he emptied himself, Philippians 2.8, he chose to live in dependence on the Spirit and he was able to answer Satan each time with, it is written, because God the Holy Spirit was filling and empowering his life. Now, if he wasn't filled with the Spirit, and there was never a time when Jesus was not filled with the Spirit, he's the perfect example, which is helpful because you see Jesus expressing all kinds of different emotions, and we covered this in section six of the course. When he went into the temple and <laughs> took a whip and cleaned house, was he filled with the Spirit? Yes, he was. How about when he wept tears, something the writer of the Hebrews reveals in Gethsemane? Yes, he was filled with the Spirit. So we have these plastic, artificial views of what a Spirit-filled Christian looked like, 
And if those were true, then Jesus wasn't spirit-filled, but he is. For the simple reason that Jesus had the Scripture hidden in his heart, he was able to take the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says, from its sheath, demonstrating that the same resources he used, we can use too. Assuming we are not grieving or quenching the Spirit and we walk by, walk by or depend on Him each moment, then as we sow to the Spirit, He will, as our helper, one of His titles, bring the treasured or hidden Word to our minds. Again, you can memorize, meditate on Scripture, but if you're grieving Him, quenching Him, you're locking your sword in the sheath. He doesn't have freedom to do what he wants to do. How can a young man keep his way pure, the psalmist asks, the longest chapter in all the Bible? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, he says, I have sought you. That, that speaks of an obedient heart. In New Testament terminology, we'd say a spirit-filled life. He's not quenching or grieving. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I've treasured. I like treasured, you could render it hidden, but it's actually used of something of a high value in the Hebrew language. And I think the NASB captures that well. You're what I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we hide the word in our hearts, it becomes more difficult to choose to sin because we have to willfully block out the truth that we have hidden. When the Spirit brings it to the forefront of our minds, uh, God's clear will. So when the Spirit brings to the forefront of our minds God's clear will, it's much more of a willful, volitional decision. Notice, when this happens, we must consciously tell our helper no. And then by a determined act of the will, we are allowing sin to take its course. Sadly, for many Christians, because they have such an apathetic approach to meditating on the Word, the evil desire or temptation is conceived, and it produces a sinful choice instead of a godly response. You know, James 1, 14 and 15, verse 14 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So God's Word is clear that sin is not an outside job but rather it's an inside job. Because why? We are, we are by sinner, we, because by nature we are sinners. Psalm 51.5, King David, right? Uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. From conception we are sinners. Now you can't dump it on Adam because we sinned in and with Adam. But understand we sin because we have a sinful nature. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. An apple tree is an apple tree because its nature is that of an apple tree. And so it says here, 81, I wrote, the Greek noun for lust simply means a strong desire. And it can be used both positively or negatively in Scripture, here it is used as an evil desire. The Spirit lusteth within you, James will write. He lusts within you. He desires you. Same word, epithemal. And yet, uh, it's used there positively. He desires to control you. So it can be used positively, negatively. We tend to use the word lust only in terms of sexual temptations. But God uses the word lust to refer to any strong desire, and in the case of James 1.14, any kind of strong evil desire. So there's many expressions of an evil desire, and it can be called lust. James, in verse 15, uses the analogy of pregnancy, because there must be conception for birth to take place, such that when there is outward attraction meeting with inward desire, the byproduct is sin. So there's this process, and I have a whole sermon on this if it would help you. James will write, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So some Christians think that they can flirt with sin in their thoughts, but such thinking brings conception that gives birth to a sinful act. You can't flirt with sin in your thought life, whether it's someone you're mad at or 
some sexual loss or whatever it is. You, you can't play with it in your mind and expect to be victorious. You're opening yourself to the process of sinful conception. Yet the treasured or hidden word can stop the process of conception. However, the Spirit will only engage our thoughts with his sword if we are allowing him the freedom that he wants and he desires. And if he has something to bring up that he has hidden. So you're dealing with some issue in your life. Now, I don't know what it would be for you, but you want to ask, well, what is it that I struggle with that I seem to just be confessing all the time? People just say, well, we're just pathetic sinners and we go to heaven this way. That's unbelief. That's not God's desire for you. God's desire for you and for me is to change us, to make us more like Christ. But he has a means by which he does it. Again, if we're grieving him because there's known, unrepented, unconfessed sin, if we're quenching him because we're unwilling to obey one of the positive aspects of the Christian life, if we are trying to live the Christian life in our own confidence and not walking by him, then it's not going to work. But if those things are true and we're sowing to the Spirit, what happens? You're walking along and all of a sudden maybe just someone slams you with some crude word. And what's our natural response? To return evil for evil, insult for insult. But Peter says we're to give a blessing instead. But because you've, say, meditated on 1 Peter 3 in verses uh, 6 through 8, and it's a part of your heart, what does the Spirit of God do? He brings it to the forefront of your mind. Or there's an opportunity for some sexual temptation. What does the Spirit of God do? He brings to the forefront of your mind. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And because it's hidden, he brings it to the forefront. He says, I don't want you watching that TV show. Because the things that are pure and right and honorable and worthy of praise, you're to set your mind to these kinds of things. And then when he has freedom to bring to the forefront of your mind, whatever it is that you struggle with, then, it, then you literally have to block out God the Holy Spirit and the word that he's brought to the front of your mind. And you have to say, no, I'm not going to listen to what you're showing me. I'm going to focus on this. And it becomes much more of a willful, conscious choice to sin. Where are we? 87. We studied in section six of this course that what fills us will control us. Very simply, what fills us will control us. We see this on the, by the way, I had some guy in my office, he's just an angry guy, angry guy. Did he know the Lord? I was convinced he did. His wife was there. What are your viewing habits like? Oh, you know, bottom line, this guy loved violence. He loved violent movies. I said, you think you can feed on that trash 24-7 and not be an angry individual? You've deceived yourself. We see this on the day when Jesus taught in the synagogue in Nazareth. We read in Luke 4, second half of the chapter, after the temptation, all the people in the synagogue were filled. Same word, plerao, they're controlled when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. They were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built. There's only one brow in all of Nazareth, and if you go with me to Israel, we go to that spot. It's a class A spot in order to throw him down the cliff. It's a thousand foot drop. Notice that the emotion of rage filled the people of Nazareth as it controlled them and resulted in an action attempting to kill Jesus. First, the scripture says they marveled at his word. We love this preacher. The next thing is kill the ump. (laughs) They wanted to choke him. And they walk almost a mile from where the synagogue was to the brow of the hill on which the city was built in the sense that that was the lookout spot and they want to throw him over the edge. What happened? He called their game. 
He said, you know, in Elijah's day, he didn't go to any Jewish people. He just went to Gentiles. Oh, you remember Elisha? He didn't go to any Jewish people, just went to Gentiles. Well, because the Gentiles, because the Jews were in unbelief. And they got the message. He's talking about us. We don't like the preacher putting the finger on our sin. And so their rage controlled them. In In parallel to one who is filled with wine, the Spirit will control the one, the the Spirit will control the way one speaks, acts, and walks. You know Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So in parallel to one that's filled with wine, the Spirit will control the way one speaks, acts, and walks. Just like if one is filled with the Word, he will direct me in concurrence with the Word that I've learned and hid. If there is some sinful attitude or action that seems to be repetitive. Make sure that you are filled with the Spirit and make sure that you have found the Scripture addressing that sin and hide it within. Turn over to Ephesians. You're in 1 Corinthians maybe, or maybe that's been long gone, but go to Ephesians chapter 5. Would you? I want you to, this is, this is worth looking at. It's worth having an open Bible. You might even want to underline a few words. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, Gary eats popcorn, go everywhere preaching Christ, the great electric power company, right? G-E-P-C, those four books are all together. They come after all the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T. The books that begin with the letter T go from long to short, so long, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Gary eats popcorn. There's nine books. If you can find one, you can find any, all right? We teach these things in the discovery class. Matt does, Sal does. We want people to get a handle on these things. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, verse 17, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit is an imperative. If you had high school real English, that's a command. And in uh, Greek, not only do they have the time of time, they have the kind of time. And we do to some degree, but not on the same level the Greeks did. Be ye continually, moment by moment, fill with the Spirit. It's a verb. And then there's a series of participles that get their strength from the main verb, the main verb to be filled, that really give us a picture of what a Spirit-filled person looks like as they grow. And again, a newly saved Spirit-filled Christian and someone who's been walking with the Lord a year will look different. Why? Because hopefully in that year they've learned more of God's Word and their life is being shaped more and more. But nonetheless, he describes a Spirit-filled Christian. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You know, that's a good mark that you're spirit-filled. There's a song in your heart. Always giving thanks, verse 20. That's a mark of a spirit-filled Christian. For all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. Okay, and then there's um, subjection, mutual subjection to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject. The word subject is obviously italicized. It's not in the parallel text. So you can't say, well, this was made up by the English translators. Uh, it's going back to the previous verse. Wives, to your own husbands. To your own husbands, what? Be subject. So it's italicized. Verse 25, if you're spirit-filled, husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. And he goes on through that and describes it in more detail. 6.1, Children, obey your parents. How do you know you got a spirit-filled child? Well, he's mocked by obedience. I didn't say sinlessness, but obedience. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4, how do you know if you're a spirit-filled dad? Fathers. It's not parents, though you could apply it to moms, but he's talking about fathers. He, he uses a specific word for dads who are supposed to be the family shepherds. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you know if you're a spirit-filled slave? Verse 5 of chapter 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Remember, there were 60 million people in slavery in the Roman Empire. When they conquered a people, they didn't put everybody in jail. They made them all slaves. You could be a doctor slave. You could be a teacher slave. You could be a plumber slave. You could be any kind of slave. And you were assigned to a Roman citizen. And it might be that the Roman citizen that you were assigned to 
was a born-again Christian. And so that's why you have this interchange in the New Testament when you have a slave who's lost or a believer and so on. Um, And masters, verse 9, do the same thing to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with God. Verse 18 of chapter 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And then verse 19, he talks about evangelism and pray on my behalf. For what? That utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth. A spirit-filled person has a desire to share Christ. You have no desire to share Christ. You're probably just ain't spirit-filled. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just, this is just reality. And sadly, today, this is the problem in the American church. Okay, so those are some marks of a spirit-filled Christian. Turn over to Colossians. Turn over to Colossians. We're going somewhere in this madness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Different command. Different command. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So the command is different. It's an imperative. Same kind of time. Let the word of Christ continually, habitually, moment by moment, richly dwell within you. Well, what does that look like? Well, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Mm. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Seems like we read this somewhere. <laughs> Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, verse 18, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters. Look at 4.1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And evangelism, here it is again, praying at the same time for us as well, what? That God will open to us a door for the Word. All right, so the Holy Spirit can talk to us to the extent that we know the Word of God. If the Word of God is filling our hearts and mind, He doesn't fill you in a vacuum. He fills us in conjunction with the Word. And sadly, many saved people cannot really honestly say that God's Word is richly dwelling within them. They don't read it, they don't study it, much less memorize it. Now back to our handout. I think we're on, what, 91? 92? If Jesus were not grieving, if we are not grieving or quenching the Spirit, and we are walking in dependence on Him, as seen in our commitment to prayer and His Word, our lives will be changed, and we will become more and more like Jesus. What a great truth. There is a direct parallel between what the Spirit produces when He fills us and when we richly hide within us the Word that He inspired. And wouldn't you expect that? We've seen this all the way through, right? We're saved by the Word. One of the parents in conversion, we're sanctified by the Word. And we walk in the Spirit in conjunction with the Word. The parallels between the command to be filled with the Spirit and the command to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within are unmistakable. And so those two passages, and if you turn the page, I gave you a chart where I charted those two passages out. And so uh, I would go through it, but for the sake of time, I'll let you go through and you can fill. I'll give you the first one. Be filled with the Spirit. That's 518. Uh, The Word of Christ richly dwell within you, that's Colossians 3.16. So go through this week, fill that out, put in the right verses. And if you're new to the Bible, um, the, the, the first number is the chapter. The two dots divide the chapter from the verse. And so you have five um, double dots, 18. That's chapter five, verse 18. You say, you're kidding me. No, these are the questions people ask in the discovery class. And if we laugh at them, we lose them, and it shows how out of touch we are that we're never working with new Christians. Mm. 95, the fact that the supernatural work of the Spirit-filled life should be so intimately related to the supernatural effects of the inspired and infallible Word of God should not be surprising to us. 
here in section seven, you have seen how the spirit of truth, that's the title Jesus gave him in John 14, 17, how the spirit of truth uses the word of truth, right? Uh, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, how the spirit of truth uses the word of truth to bring about the second birth by the word of truth, James 1.18. You're born again, how? By the word of truth as his instrument to bring us to salvation. We have also seen how the spirit of truth uses the pure milk of the word. There it's not baby simple truth, but unadulterated, pure truth. And sadly, people are being sold dirty milk in our day, watered down, compromised teaching because they're afraid in a culture that is quickly going down what people are going to think about them. So he uses the spirit of truth, the pure milk of the word, in order to progressively save our souls. That's what James 1 talks about. He talks about in a present tense aspect of salvation, which we've already covered, as his instrument to bring about salvation. Salvation here being the present aspect, not just sanctification, but um, growth. To save our souls so that we may grow in respect to your salvation. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples the relationship between the Spirit and the Word during his Bread of Life discourse. Remember the Bread of Life discourse? There's a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 or slash 20,000 probably. 5,000 heads of household. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John records it. What John does uniquely is he gives the sermon that Jesus gave the next day. People are blown away. Look at, man, the food's great. The miracles are incredible. What do they do? They all cross the lake. They show up in Capernaum. And he preaches to this mass of people, but not everybody likes the sermon. And so we read here in verse 63 of chapter 6, where the sermon is, it is the Spirit, Jesus said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So he's showing them the relationship between the Spirit and the Word during this great sermon. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. A few verses later, in verses 66 and 67, many of the disciples, in, in name only, and that's what I mean, disciples, or you could put in air quotes, they're disciples in name only, they withdrew, and so separated the true disciples from the false disciples. I hope you know, I think most of you do, that every time the word disciple is used in the New Testament, it's not always used of a believer. And it's not always used just of the 12. The word mathetes just meant a learner. Acts 19, they meet some disciples of John who weren't converted yet. All they had was the message that John the Baptist gave. They hadn't heard about Jesus yet. They were disciples, they were learners, but they weren't converted. And here there's this mass of people. John 8 would be another example where you have all these disciples who are acknowledging Jesus' teaching, and then he turns around, they're called disciples, and he says, you are actually of your father, the devil. They weren't converted. And so this mass of learners leave. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Knowing that the majority of these alleged learners were defecting, Jesus asked a question of the 12 that assumed a negative answer. The way it's constructed in Greek, the answer is emphatically no. But he asked it anyway. He asked the question not because he had questions about the 12's perseverance, but because they needed to reaffirm their commitment since the majority of the disciples present had abandoned Jesus, at least on this day. What is clear in verses 68 and 69 is that Peter understood the relationship of the Spirit of God to the Word of God in the giving of eternal life. He understood the relationship. Simon Peter answered him, Are you guys going to duck out too? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Notice we. I underlined it because he's speaking on their behalf. You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Typically, Peter spoke up for the 12, and on this day, he, on behalf of the 12, he affirmed their allegiance to the one whom he now identified as the Holy One of God. That's a messianic term, Psalm 16, Isaiah 43. Even the demons identify Jesus as the Holy One of God. When Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? He did not mean that they viewed Jesus as their last resort but that Jesus was their only hope. When collectively, when they collectively said, you have the words of eternal life, they were agreeing with Jesus' point in John 6, 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Paraphrase is one Paraphrase translation renders it, the words bring God's life-giving spirit. There's a connection, and we've seen that already in James 1:18, 1 Peter 1:21. They believe that Jesus' teachings or words resulted in eternal life. For those who believed, once again establishing a close connection between the word that not only saves us, but the word that also sanctifies or changes us. Peter realized this basic equation. The spirit plus the word equals real life. And eternal life, remember, is not just heaven. It's our walk with the Lord. That's why the scripture says in John 17, you can have it today. Um, And so he understood that, which is why Jesus later prayed in his high priestly prayer just before his arrest on his way to Gethsemane. Remember, two prayers that night, the high priestly and then a second one in Gethsemane. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Apostle Paul also alluded to this intimate working relationship of the Spirit using the word that the Holy Spirit inspired in saying, but we all with unveiled face looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's an important verse. It's not preached on much, but God wants us to know that you and I can be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and go from glory to glory through the ministry of the Spirit of God as we look into the mirror of the Bible. You have to look into the mirror of the Bible. We've already learned earlier in this section that a mirror, we learned it in James 1, for instance, is a symbol of the Word of God, such that as we look into God's Word and we and see God's Son, the Spirit transforms us into the same image of God. If you're not looking into the Word intently in a mirror, we saw that illustration, that change is significantly hindered. For the Scripture to have its full impact, we have seen that we must be, there must be a weeding out before there can be an effective seeding in. For if we are grieving or quenching the Spirit, we will not be able to sow to the Spirit. And so it is important that we are open and honest with God and as such are not wearing a veil by hiding sin instead of confessing and forsaking it. Again, this is why we spend so much time in the discovery class about the need for the believer to deal with sin. Section two of the discovery class deals with our fellowship, our intimacy with God and how to deal with temptation and the need to confess sin. And then again in section six, The word translated transformed in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the same word used of the Lord's transfiguration. And he was transfigured, metamorpho. It's this exact same word that is translated transformed in in 2 Corinthians 3.18. In fact, it's the exact same form of the word, the same spelling. It's not a different case or anything. It's the exact same word. And words, of course, can take on meaning in their context, but nonetheless, the context of what happened to Jesus is an illustration of what Paul is talking about. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. It describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. And so our English word, metamorphosis, is a transliteration of this Greek word. You know what a transliteration is? Like baptizo, you take the sounds, b, 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 uh, you know, and alpha, a, and so forth. It's just a transliteration. 
takes the word and just puts it directly into English. And the word means a change of form. When an insect like a caterpillar comes out of a cocoon, becomes a butterfly, there's a metamorphosis. I'm going to drive us home because we got one more week and we got to finish it next week, all right? And then I'll pray. It describes, 116, a change on the outside that comes from the inside. And so our English word metamorphosis is a transliteration of the Greek verb. My wife done it for years. Um, Michelle Norman here introduced her to some, some uh, I said weed, it's milkweed. <laughs> weed would be a bad word. Milkweed. And, uh, uh, and nonetheless, we'd see these little larvae, you know, form in a chrysalis, and then they'd break out into a monarch butterfly, and we'd watch them in all the stages, and our kids would, now our grandkids, and we'd take that monarch right after it broke off, and we'd put it on our nose, and you, you were like, you know, who is my mother, you know, in that, in that, uh, that book, you know, years ago, sit right on your finger. It's just a magnificent thing, and once he dried his wings off, he was gone. That crummy little worm became a beautiful monarch butterfly. It's fun to watch. That's why we have one of these special gardens, and we see it every year. It's fun. When an insect like a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out as a butterfly, that is a metamorphosis. It means a change of form. When the disciples saw Jesus' face shine like the sun and his clothing become as white as light, they were seeing a glimpse of his inner glory because there was a metamorphosis that took place. When God saves us, we become, 2 Peter 1, 4, partakers of the divine nature. doesn't mean we become God, but we're born again, and the Spirit is planted in us. We become partakers of the divine nature. And then by God's design, as we grow, we are transformed, and our inner nature comes to the surface, and we are changed from glory to glory. If you know the context of 2 Corinthians 3, 18 then you know that in chapter 3, Paul is contrasting the old covenant ministry with the new covenant ministry, where Jesus changes us from the inside out. Moses had an outward expression from being in the presence of the Lord, and he had to cover his face with that veil, right? What he's talking about in that chapter is the new covenant where it's from the inside out. The most that the old covenant ministry could accomplish was to show us our need for Christ. Galatians 3.24, the law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And God still uses it as a schoolmaster. Romans 7, 7, I would not have known about sin if the word didn't say thou shalt not, you know, covet and so forth. And so the law still serves as a schoolmaster to reveal sin. But that's all it can do. It was unable to make us like Christ. However, the one who sows to the Spirit, we've seen that from Galatians 6, 8, by staring into the mirror of God's word can begin to see a change from the inside out. We have studied the inextricable link between being filled with the Spirit and immersing our minds in Scripture. The only issue that remains is whether or not I am desperate for His Spirit and His word. We live in a day of entertainment. You can entertain yourself until you're blue in the face. Do you really earnestly long for the Spirit in His Word? We wonder why we're stuck in the same old habits and don't see God change us. You will grow by meditating upon the Word, by going over the Word again and again until it becomes a part of your life. I miss 124, right? To have God's word richly dwell within us, we must meditate on the word. And this involves prolonged thinking. And we already covered this as one literally mumbles. That's what the word meditate means or just speaks to oneself each day by continually thinking on the Bible. Then it becomes a part of you and it changes your life. Meditation, 126, is not simply the setting aside of a special time for personal devotions, though it may involve that. But it is constant reflection on the Word of God over the course of a day as we desire to know and obey what God has revealed. There is no discipleship program or activity 
or ministry that can develop you as a believer, a believer apart from digest, the digesting of God's word. When meditating on Scripture, when meditating on Scripture becomes part of who you are, then the Spirit, then He really has freedom. Then the Spirit, He will change your character and He will make you more like Jesus. So, you know, if you're married, go home with your spouse and say, Honey, what what, what are we going to memorize? What do you want me to memorize? And work on it. If you're single, begin to memorize. Now, I'll give you next week a hundred of the most important verses. I'd say the most important. They're just my take. (laughs) But a hundred verses that I think will be very helpful that every Christian should know from the New Testament. Let's bow together in prayer. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success.